Great stuff. Okay. Right, let's go with this. Let's roll with the punches, as they say. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, okay. Uh, Jock McGuinness. Unbelievable. How does a guy go from a wee laddie in methyl to raising two million pounds. Now, I don't want a short answer, obviously, because that'll be the show finished. <laughs> <laughs> so where did it all begin for you? You know, uh, you know, I know you were born at an early age, as we all were at, at zero. <laughs> <laughs> but where did it all start? Um, you know, what, what, I mean, where were you born about? What was your primary school? What secondary school did you go to? Were you great at what you did? Give me the story. <laughs> First of all, morning, Jim, and thanks for letting me on your show. Uh, well, I was born in St Andrews, mm -hmm. Craig Dune Maternity Park. Ooh, uh, so I'm I'm 100% Fifer. Everything I do, I promote Fife all the way through. Uh, schools, well, my dad was in the forces, so I went to hundreds of different schools, just like a lot of other forces children. Uh, but I did go to Methyl Primary School, ended up at Cutland High School, and I went to Cutland High School to the forces, basically. Uh, I had two years as a junior soldier up at Bridge of Dawn in Aberdeen, which was a real eye-opener for me. It was great to get away from the family. But in these days, at least you were getting three good meals a day. You, were, uh, you had a roof over your head. You had clothes, even though it was army clothes. Yeah. And the good thing about it is you had discipline. It was great. And you kept fit and you were, we were all together, all in it together. So there was nobody different. So you, you were you a similar upbringing then like uh, the guys that go to Dumblain Hydro? Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and my son, uh, he had the same sort of upbringing as I did mm -hmm. coming through the forces. So from an early age, Discipline was installed. Uh, a sense of purpose was installed. Timing was definitely installed because you, you can't be late for anything. Yeah. And to this day, when I go to work, if I start at half six, I'm there at six because mm -hmm. I, I want to be early. But uh, that's so. The early do, you, years. so do you think that's quite important then in the beginning? It's the discipline and it's the it's the consistency and it's and it's. Do you think that's what that's what's born you in good stead from the very beginning? Yeah, I think so. I, I think discipline and everything like that comes from your parents. Uh, we, we all know when we're parents uh, what's right and what's wrong. It's only when we go to uh, the school that we see there's different directions you can go. You know, there's peer pressure and things all like right. that. But having that wee bit of discipline inside you will say, no, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go my own way. I'm not going to <laughs> do this and do that. I'm, I'm going to keep on the right path. But it's difficult. I can see that. Peer pressure is a big thing at school. You know, um, you know obviously, you, you, get in, you get in with the wrong crowd and you're, you've more or less had it. You know, that's you. I, I, but then if you get in, even if you get in with the right crowd, the wrong crowd sometimes, you know, it takes to you and starts to, well, effectively bully you. You know, that's yeah. that's one of the other things as well. So... You know, it's, it's quite it's quite challenging. You know, my time at you know my time at primary was absolutely glorious. Um, but Kevin didn't turn out as it as it was meant to turn <laughs> out. <at. laughs> 
<laughs> I was uh, I was gloriously asked to leave at fifth year and said and basically said don't come back. <laughs> but that's another that's another story. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm a great believer in hindsight um, of of you know um, of I think it's the people that surround you will mould you and shape you for the future. Yeah, it's and and the force has done that for me. I mean, they took a wee boy from Ethel and took him away to Aberdeen, educated him on his discipline, etc., and, and and pointed them right. And then when I went to uh, the regiment, where there was a lot older people there, but luckily there was people there uh, from, from my childhood, you know, my brother and a boy called Willie Pratt from Ethel Hill and, and other people of that ilk round about me. So they sort of looked after you, the nursery, and said, right, this is what we're going to do. Rightly and wrongly, sometimes they'd say, have you any money? No, I have no money. Right, come out the night with us and we'll look after you. And you didn't have to spend a penny, but the same would happen months down the line to help them out. But, uh, we'll look but that, after that's a thing, but that's a thing that's instilled in the older generation today. Yeah. It's like when you have when you have a lot of young, I mean, I, I, I went through it as well, my, my father and his friends, you know, there's like, no, no, Sonny, you don't buy anything. You know, we'll, we'll take you out, we'll look after you, that's fine. Uh, you're obviously just starting out. And uh, and that's the kind of things the older generation did for the younger generation. That's um, right, we looked after each other. I mean, although we were in the forces all together and we went drinking at the weekend together, when we had our holidays or leave, we went on the same train back to Methel and leaving. You know, we all went back together and we met up. You know, if we weren't married, <laughs> we met up to go to the pubs, etc. Yeah. Which is great. Mm. So, so, and in, in, in your uh, in your journey, then, so it was basically a forces education you had. Yeah, um, it was that discipline that instilled in you from the beginning, and that got you off to the right foot. You know, so, so, what about what advice would you give you a younger person today? Then, you know, just start, you know, just just start now. You know, someday uh, it's uh, maybe at primary or some, someday it's maybe at secondary education, and and they're obviously finding it quite challenging. You know, what, what yeah. sort of advice would you give them now? Well, I, I've got grandchildren that are around about that. You, you know, they're 16 and, and 13, 14. And, uh, and when I speak to them, I say, look, stick in at school. You might not like it. I mean, we Callum, my grandson, is not a big fan of school. I said, it doesn't matter, Callum. Stick in at school. Get as much education as you can. And if you didn't, if you didn't pass exams, you didn't pass them. At least you've tried. Mm-hmm. get as much education as you can and, and decide what you want to do. And let's say it's a train driver or whatever, go for it. And if that doesn't work out, at least you've got a wee bit of education, you can go on a different route and keep trying and keep trying. Never, ever give up on anything. Just keep pushing hard. But it starts off at school and it carries on. But I kind of, you know, it's the same sort of thing I've learned as well. Exactly what you're saying. It's um, and in hindsight, that's um, it was never my point of readiness at school. Um, I just wasn't ready at that time. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no direction. Um, but it was only later on that I began to realise that that was kind of my point of readiness. And and my children, you know, were similar as well. You know, a couple of them were focused, and and one wasn't. They? And and I remember saying to the guidance teacher at one point, it's just no his point of readiness. And they went, and the guidance teacher took a step back and went, hey, what are you talking about? And I went, well, maybe just school's no for him. Because at the end of the day, it's no over. <laughs> if you didn't make it at school, <laughs> it's just the beginning. <laughs> You're right, Jim, because schooling is just 
a part of your education. You know, it's it's getting away from school and getting into the public eye, you know, and being with your pals and being as an adult as, as the start of your education yeah. and, and learning, learning by your mistakes, etc. But it's just a case of just keep going and seeing what you can do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was your school times. Any... Any is there uh, now? I, I typically don't ask anybody this, but I'm going to ask you because is there any memorable moments in your school that you remember? Something that no, sticks in your mind? No, no, my school life, no, because it was. I, I went to Cutland there, and it was apart from getting the belt every second day. That's <laughs> the all stuck out. Uh, but no, my my aim was always to go into the forces. So, yeah. uh, you know. Wasn't the brightest being gone? I mean, I'm dyslexia wasn't around then. You know, you're just a stupid wee boy, you know. And and I've got dyslexia, but it didn't hold me back years on. So apart from getting the belt, no, the forces was a start basically of me yeah. moving forward. So at what point did you go to the forces schools then? Because you said you were at Kirtland. Yeah, uh, I left Kirtland in uh, 1972. Uh, just a young laddie. And I went up to Aberdeen for two years. Yeah. Uh, and my brother had just left Aberdeen when I got there because he was in the forces. Uh, spent two great years up there. And then I went down as an adult, they'll call us, just 17 and a half down to Colchester. Never been over the border and all my puff. And then they send us to Essex. Yeah. What sort Never of education? So much of my life. What sort of education did you have at Kirtland then? Did you come out with anything, any startling results? No, no, I, I, had, I had absolutely nothing. Uh, and that was it. I even remember the 11 plus. Yeah. I feel my 11 plus. Just when I was a wee laddie. I, right. You know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't bright at all. So I came out with nothing. So I had to start with nothing. But it doesn't matter if you start with nothing. You've always got your health and, you, you know, and, and you've always got a wee plan that you're going to go for. Yeah. So if you don't have education, that's okay. Well, it's not okay, but it's it's not going to help you. But at least you've got something. You know, you know, you've got friends around you. You've got your health. You've got a wee, a wee tunnel that you want to go down. Well, it's a classic example of a fish can swim extremely well, but if you judge it on its ability to climb a tree, it'll go about <laughs> yeah. thinking it's stupid yeah. for the rest of its life. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but as I say, my my real start in life was was in the forces. You know, getting that education, that well, military education behind me, the discipline behind me, and and although I I spent twenty two year plus in the forces, I, I never actually was a soldier in all that time. Uh, I started teaching advanced physical training. Yep. But 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 that only came out when I joined the regiment at Colchester, uh, and the boxing started there as well. Right. The, 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 the physical instructor, the boxing and stuff, yeah. you know, is this just a natural flow or, or, or did you just go with the flow or, or, or is, this a, is this a thing you had planned out for yourself or you wanted to no, do? No, I, I went with the flow. I mean, I joined the regiment. I was, I, was, I was into the military kit and I was shooting. I was on the radios. I was doing tactics. I was doing all that for years. Then I thought to myself, nah, I'm not liking this soldier life. My brother... Willie, who was a year older than me, was a fantastic soldier. He can do all the courses and snipers courses and everything. He was great. Mm-hmm. I wasn't he? I thought, well, I'm going to hit a buck up and do something here. Uh, and 
every year in the regiment they have the regimental boxing. Yeah. You know, I was always in bother for fighting anyway. So this never. Is... <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> so I was in bother for fighting. So uh, I had no education. I could fight a wee bit. Great soldier. You know, if you put us in the front line, we're all going to win. Uh, so they put me into the regimental boxing in the company. So there was, say, 150 us in the company. We'd all box, and it would, it would come down to a wee team. And that wee team would box in the championships. And I, I happened to become uh, the Black Watch flyweight champion, you know, in 1977. Wow. Oh, some, sorry, 75, 76. And I, I thought, this is great. I've got a tiny, tiny wee trophy, yeah. I thought that was great. And I thought, I'm all right with this. Aye, were you beginning to like that then? I was beginning to like that. The sort of reward and uh, and stuff like that. It's that that started to drive you forward a bit more then. It it did, it pushed me on. And and one of the guys in the regiment, a guy called Charlie Sexton, oh, what a handy man this was. And and he actually went on to turn pro and everything like that. He says, John, you're you're quite handy with your hands. I says, Well, my dad could box. He says, Ah, you've got it in you. Join the gym. Join the gym in the battalion. But to join the gym in the battalion at that time, you have to have represented the army. So he took me and a few others, a boy from Perth, uh, Derek Riley, doing a Aldershot in the army championships. Honestly, excuse my friends, but I was shite myself. Oh, there were some handy, handy laddies. All different regiments all over. Yeah. And we had to box them. And lo and behold, the wee boy from Methyl became the army champion. Flyweight in 1977. And and so let's let's analyze that for a wee minute, right? You turn up and you're shiting yourself for want a better phrase, because and why was that? Because you just felt you were out of your league and people were bigger than you, or that's that's exactly it. Uh, there, there was there was lots of people went in, they were all different weights, all different regiments, all different colours, all different accents, accents. And, and, and we're all there at the weigh-in, et cetera. And I'm looking around me and I thought, am I out of my depth here? Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm here anyway. I'm going to make a good account of myself. You know, I'm, there's only four or five of us down here for the regiment, Scottish. Yeah. You know, I says, no, to hell with it. No one's better than us. Let, let's get stuck in. That's when that wee nagging doubt in the back of your mind begins to play with you, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, it, that, it's that voice you have it's to It's that wee voice. It's like... The devil and the angel on your on your shoulder, you know, one saying, then he go, another one say, yeah, go for it. And right. and luckily it's a Scottish angel that says, Go for it. You you will you will make it. And and actually I did, you know. Right. Uh, I've seen it I've seen it loads of times in triathlon where people turn up, you know, especially younger people, they look at look at some of their competitors and and they're all dressed for the part and they've got the best gear and they look the part and everything like that. Yeah. And and they've often I've had them come to me and say, you know, it's like it's like, oh, they're they're gonna be absolutely fantastic. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I said, <laughs> what makes you think they're gonna be fantastic before they've even done anything? Yeah. They don't even know what they're like. And and it's like and it, and it is because the psychological thing it's the Muhammad Ali thing where it's like yeah. you're going down in the second. <laughs> yeah, Jim, letters, I, and you're going down in the second. <laughs> I, I've seen it myself in the boxing world, and I, and I've experienced it in in Canada when I went canoeing. Yeah, uh, well, it was over in Canada, and uh, we were doing canoeing, uh, and we we're in the Rockies, and the snow was up to your armpit, so they cancelled. 
he cancelled the the boat, uh, the the canoeing, and on on the bus, the army bus back to camp, I could hear on the local radio that there was going to be amateur boxing in a place called Medicine Hat, and that's where we all drunk. That's where all the boys drunk at the night. So I scribbled down the number, and I phoned them up and I said, "Look, you've got a boxing show on in two days' time. Yeah, uh, I've got 30, 40 odd people here that's had something cancelled. Would like to attend." They went, right, okay. I said, how much are the tickets? And let's say ten dollars. I said, right, eight dollars, and I'll bring thirty odd guys. He says, right, okay. I said, in fact, if you're that keen, let's make it six dollars. He says, I'm not going to make much profit. I said, okay, seven dollars. So we bantered on the ticket price, and uh, so I sold the idea to the jocks. Uh, and, and the boy said to me, the, the Canadian said to me, Canadian boys box? I says, aye, I've got a guy that boxes. He says, what weight is he? I says, what weight do you want? He says, oh, he's, he's got to be at least a welterweight. I says, aye, I've got somebody. He says, who's that? I says, myself. Now, I was never a welterweight. I was never that heavy. He said, well, get him to turn up at the gym. I said, right, I'll be there no more. So me and another boy went down to the gym and he said, stand on the scales. And I knew I was not going to make that weight because uh, I was too light. So I filled, <laughs> filled my pockets with stones and all. My hair was soaking wet. I had about three jackets on. And I stepped on this. I basically jumped on the scales. And he says, oh, you just made that. I says, aye, aye. He says, have you had a few fights? I says, well, I've had a few fights. He says, but you're fighting the Calgary champion. you just blagging it at this point. Oh, aye. He says, uh, you're fighting the Calgary champion. I went, aye, that's okay. But he's had about 150 fights. I said, that's okay. It doesn't matter. Because I was getting all these jokes in there. Where does that mindset come from, though? You know, the fact that it's like, wait a minute, this guy's had 150 fights. Uh, did you ever doubt yourself at any point in time? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Nah, I thought, it's a night out anyway. All the jokes are getting a cheap entertainment, you know. Uh, so when I tell the jokes I was boxing, we all went up. There must be 30 or 40 of us. And they were all betting as well. So I climbs in the ring. And my opponent climbs in the ring and he had these shorts on. And then they days you had like uh, Calgary champion and Alberta this and Alberta that. And it, had, it was all it was all badges. And he had two women on his hand, on his arms when he climbed in. And the two women went away and he comes right up to me. It's, you know, the, the big cockiness. Oh, you, you're getting you're getting it. You're getting it. I went, Hi, very good, sir. Bugger off. And, and that was it. We're still in the ring. And uh, a boy called Willie Nickel, who didn't know a lot about boxing, said to me, he said, Chuck, you got a fight in your hands? I said, I'll have a fight. And that was it. First round, it was going either way until he clocked me a good in and almost went down. But I never. And, he, and I went back and uh, Willie says to me, he says, Chuck, you want to keep your hands up? I said, oh, it's only, I'm only mugging up. He thinks he's got me beat here. I said, tell the boys to up the betting. So he leaves the corner and goes down and speaks to all the jocks. So all the jocks are putting more money on me, even though I'm getting a hiding. Second round, I'm getting a worse hiding. I said, did you pick the bet? Aye, pick money on for us. I'm going to stop a win. Then, eh? <laughs> so I, I, I beat him in the third round. I, I stopped him. You know, just knocked him right down. You wouldn't so what, get up again. What, what, what drove you in the third round? Was it the fact that everybody had committed and betted on you? Yeah, It's all, I have to do it now. Yeah, I, I didn't want them to lose money because I'd already committed myself. And, and, 
and I felt positive about myself and I knew I could beat this guy, this cocky wee Canadian. I could beat him. Uh, and, and in Canada, uh, the, the winner gets an envelope with money in it because I was topping the bill and you also get a trophy. Yeah. And after I beat him, I just gave him the, I gave my opponent the trophy and said, there's a wee present for you. So me and Willie, my number two, we went to the pub with all the jocks. So they had won a fortune. And, and it was just great. But it's, it's being positive about yourself and saying, yeah. I, I, I can do this. It is half the battle, mastering everything. I mean, you know, I, I, um, there was, uh, I don't know if you, well, Matt Higgins from Shark Tank actually comments on it quite a lot on LinkedIn. Right. Um, and he said something the other day about, you know, the mind. And, and I says, well, the biggest challenges I've had personally is mastering my mind and the way I think. Yes. It's, it's, it's nothing to do with anybody else because everybody else thinks it's about being better than your competitor. It, but it's not. It's actually mastering here. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's mastering you. Yeah, it's beating yourself first. You know, get past yourself first. Your own stumbling blocks, it's going to stop you getting there. And, and you're there. Uh, but how do you start that journey then? Is it the fact that, is it just small steps at a time? And, and, it's and small steps. It's, have you done a firewalk? Yes, I have actually. Did you do the walking on uh, broken glass first? No. <laughs> right. Well, I done, I done one in Glenrothes actually. And it, it was a, a group of people that came to do Did the firewalk. Did you just say you so, had a pub in Glenrothes? <laughs> no, and, not a broken pub. All oh, right, okay. Because no. I, I had a funny feeling. It was like, this is going to end up like one night we thought it would be a great idea to bro walk. <laughs> It was organised, it was in a big hotel in Glenrothes and uh, they were doing the firewalk but it says before we do the firewalk we want to get in your head that you can do this we went right okay uh, and it says basically right we're going to do walk on broken glass first and you wee man you're up first so I'm off my shoes and socks and, and I walked across the broken glass a few times and I went, hey, well, I can do this. And then the second thing that, I mean, I've done lots of dark things in my life, really crazy things, but this was really crazy. They brought out what they call the, the arrow challenge. It's where they get an arrow. It's about a foot long and they put the metal tip in your neck and the other end goes to a, a bit of wood. Wow. So it's, it's in length and you've got to walk forward after they go one, two, three, right, walk forward. And I'm thinking, well, if I walked forward, this arrow's going right through my neck. But it's, it's having, having this thought, this mind that's saying, I can do this. So as soon as you take a step forward, it buckles and snaps. Yeah. You well, know? Well, but the very fact is you convinced yourself and the yeah. possibly yeah. that might know, that might go straight through your neck. That, that's it. But you've got to have that wee determination, that wee, that, yeah, I'm not going to get hurt here. I'm not going to get hurt and take that step forward. Yeah. And then we went to the and done the firewalk. <laughs> you almost wait and say, you almost act as if aye, the firewalk was just a secondary thing. <laughs> it was like, aye, we just thought we'd go and do it at the same time at the back of that. <laughs> yeah, but the arrow was the scariest. The arrow was the scariest. So this has led you through the journey of your school days, your black, your, you know, black watch. Were you in the black watch at that time when you were there or was that after the black watch? What was that for? For for this, uh, for the over in Canada and that. Was that the Yeah, same? well, I was in the Black Watch then. It was an exercise they were on, but because I was in the gymnasium, uh, I, I started teaching outdoor pursuits and rock climbing and hill walking and skiing. And 
canoeing and everything like that. So I was over there with the forces, mm-hmm. you, you know, the Black Waters doing it, uh, which was great because the boys are brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're all positive, you know, they're all positive lads. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and share some screens here um, for some photographs, um, if you can bear with me. Um, so, but you know, that takes you on your journey to... You've got the Black Watch itself, but then what happened after that then? Is it a nat- was it a natural progression to, to then leave the Black Watch or, you know, was it your time up or, or what? Well, I, I finished as a senior NCO or sergeant in the Black mm-hmm. Watch. And to be honest, uh, you, you can carry on after that. Yeah. If you've got the rank. I didn't have the rank because of my discipline. I never left with a long service and good conduct medal, they can say. Yeah. But... I'd done a 22 year plus and, and then I left. Yeah, but you just know. stop there though now. It's like I picked up on that phrase, you didn't get the rank because of your discipline. Yeah. What what what, what what's behind that? You know, is that is that what I think it is? Basically, yeah. You know, I think like my brother, my rank was on there on, on Velcro. You, you know, it was on there one day and off the next. But that was all part of the learning curve, you, you know. Seeing what's right, and what's wrong. But that's the thing. But you, you still went on to do something greater and better. That's you know, it. But because when I was in the forces and I was teaching outdoor pursuits, when I left the forces, I still had all the qualifications. Yeah. And so I settled in Schoon rather than Methyl. I settled in Schoon. <laughs> they basically says, do you want to go to Methyl or stay in Schoon? But my young laddie was settled in Schoon, so. Yep. That was the excuse. We stayed here. Yep. But I, I could teach football. So I was teaching football in the local park and they were looking to raise money. They said, how are we going to raise money? I said, why don't you do an abseil? You know, they went, what's that? And I explained about, it's like repelling, as the Americans call it. I said, well, go away to Dunkeld and you get yourselves all sponsored and I'll take his abseil. I'm qualified to do that. And that started off on one Sunday and I kept doing it for 12 years. So I kept wow. teaching Absalom for nothing to groups yeah. from all over Scotland. You know, they would phone me up and say, oh, can we come down on Sunday, such and such? Would You know, are you all sponsored? Yes, we're all sponsored. How much is it? I would say, nothing. Except, you hate to buy me a pint and my pal a pint. That's each Absalom. And if you've got 30 Absalom's, that's a good night out. <laughs> <laughs> but we honestly we raised thousands upon thousands in, in the summer months, mm-hmm. you know, just doing absolute for there. So I had the qualifications to do that. So why you know what, what drove you to do that then? You know, what drove you to do that in the first place? You know, what why why did you say that I'll just do it for nothing? Why did you not think about, you know, I could set up a business or you know, why why was it what was what's behind you that actually drives you to do that? It was basically on the first arm sale, I was seeing the laddies and, and their partners arm sale and I thought, look at the smiles on their faces. They're having a great time. You know, they're really enjoying us. Yeah. And then, and, and we just carried it on because people were enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm not here to make money because if, if I'm making money, if I, if I take a fiver of one arm sailor, that means a fiver less going to that charity, you know? Yeah. And I could see the expressions of some of the laddies' faces walking backwards off a perfectly good cliff with some lunatic I've never met before. You know, they've worked hard to get that money. I'm saying, right, you, you just keep that. Just buy us a pint. 
and they'll go yeah. down to the dab sale and they'll come back and do it again and again and again. So I, I wasn't wanting to make money off it. I was just wanting it to see people's expression going down on that, you know, off that cliff face. How many and people do you think went through that process then? Went through the abseiling? Thousands, thousands and thousands. I couldn't wow. say. You know, we're talking from all over. You know, they were coming to Glasgow. We, we, we had families from Glasgow that came and abseiled. And the wee boy would turn around and say, look over there, mister. Look, look, look at the size of that dog. I said, that's a sheep, son. <laughs> oh, yeah, sheep. we got sheep. I said, I am the sheep. And he was telling his wee pal, you know, sheep and coos and everything like that. He says, oh, we, we, we didn't get this. And they were for the gorbals or something like that, you know. Yeah. So it, it was just it was just making people happier, you, you know. And, and we were happier afterwards because we had a pint with them all. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a bit like the voluntary football and stuff like that on a, on a weekend for the for the under, and you know, the under-13s, under, you know, the youth itself. It's kind of the same process, isn't it? But it yeah, just, it opens you're just up. making a difference for people. Yeah, it's it, and, and you know, I, I, you know, I've got to take my heart off to you for that, Jock. I mean, I wasn't even aware that you were actually did things like that. So you were doing the abseil in that. Um, most memorable stories on the abseil in is there anything? Did oh, anything God. happen that you thought, oh my God? <laughs> no, no, no. Luckily, everything went smoothly. There wasn't there wasn't any issues. Yeah. Uh, but every year. Your last abseil, myself and there was two others that helped me, two boys. Uh, one's passed on just now, but the other one, Mike Scott. We always dressed up, mm-hmm. you know, and and it was always great that we, we dressed up into some funny costume for the very last one. Yeah. But I also done abseiling uh, over in Hong Kong. I ran a water sports centre in Hong Kong, and uh, the, I, I was asked to organise it off a building in Hong mm-hmm. Kong. And he says, you can take your family a long way. And yep. I only had a young son and, and the wife. And I said, oh, well, that's great. He said, you're going to be, you, you've got to do it as Father Christmas. I thought, God, okay. And so when I turned up, you know, at the bottom of this building, I had all the equipment, all the ropes and everything like that. And it was quite, it was, it was 200 feet. I went, right, okay. And there's your costume. And there's your padding, you know, for a big fat belly. I went, right, okay. Okay, how am I going to fit all that and then be safe? Right. So I said to my son, <laughs> I says, right, sure, we'll, we'll jump in the left and we'll go up and we'll set up, throw the ropes down, and then you come down on the left. And I want you to be the brake man. Because I didn't have... When, when you abseil down, you know, you, you have a safety rope. Yeah. Well, he couldn't be at the top because he didn't know what to do. He was on a young laddie. I said, what happens is I'll just use the one rope and if I give you a wave, all you do is pull this rope, Stuart, and it'll put the brake on. He says, right, Dad, no problem. So we get up the top, set the ropes up, throw them down. It was a nice, secure building. And I get into the padding, but I couldn't do the belt up all the way. It should have went. And it was a great big long beard in that. I said, right, in the left, Stuart, away down the bottom. Give me the thumbs up when you're holding the rope. So he gives me the thumbs up at the bottom. There's a big crowd. All, the, all, the, all these Hong Kong folk are there, all expats. There's hundreds of them. And the wife's sitting there with a cocktail watching us. And his son's splitting the trees, sweats latching at me. And I'm on I'm on the edge of this building. And I'm still so far down. And there's people at the top are throwing, uh, like, rice and that down as, as if it's snow, you know. Oh, I went, yeah, yeah. And they say, right, stop there and wave to them. So I put the brake on and I'm waving to all the crowd at the bottom. 
And I went to go again, but I couldn't go because my beard had got caught up in my descender. <laughs> and I thought, I, I can't go down, I can't go back up. And I'm stuck, you know, about 20 feet to the top. I thought, what am I going to do here? I'll have to let my hands go, pull the beard out and grab it again. I said, right, but I'll give my son a, a thumbs up to put the break on. And he went, no problem, Dad, thumbs up. And I thought, great, he's got the brake on. So I let my hands go, pulled it out, and I fell 10 feet because you never put the brake on properly. So I just went doing the building and I'm, and I'm falling, you know, and I'm trying to get the beard out at the same time and grab the rope. And honestly, <laughs> I was shaking all the way down, got to the bottom and I had a big chair for me to sit in. There's kids climbing on my knee and pulling my beard and I'm still shaking. <laughs> and I said to my son, why, why did you not put the brake on? I thought you were enjoying yourself and you were just waving to me. And you were, you were showing off when you fell. I said, Stuart, I was really falling. And that was absolutely it. My goodness. It's I mean, all I'm part of it. I'm terrified you even talking about that. But in the reality is, you're here though. So obviously nothing happened. Yeah, nothing happened. No, I just got to the <laughs> oh, But the and... thing is, I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder what happened to you. And it's like, wait a minute, you're sitting right in front of me. <laughs> ah, I was all right. Yeah. <laughs> But no, Absalom was great. But I, I did, I, I met a guy that was on it, on one of the Absales, and uh, he had just came back for a, a charity trip. You know, one of these charity trips. And he was talking yeah. to me about it. He said, chocolate's great. We go to such and such. And you you walk about eight hours a day, and then you'll come up, etc. He says, it's a great, it's great. He says, but get yourself sponsored. Do it for charity. And that's when I, Went and done the Sahara Desert for the first time. Ah, the Sahara. I've got a picture of that. Hopefully we'll be able to show that. Uh, it we'll was great. Sahara somewhere. Uh, bear with me. I'm on a different... Uh... This one. So if I can share that, um, hopefully that'll come through. Uh, you see that okay? Oh, yeah. That's me and the Berber. <laughs> you notice my beard's nice, eh? Yeah, wow. Hey, why is your beard that colour? Well, it started off pure blue. It was as blue as the the, the Berber uh, jacket there. Yeah. Every time you had a wash in the morning or at night, it was getting lighter and lighter. It was lime green the time I got home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that was just for sponsorship, you know. Yeah. yeah. But that was a great trip. Wow. And then that's you obviously resting. That's me chilling out, yeah. Yeah, I was lucky to get the rucksack up. I was knackered. So, what did you do in the Sahara then? So, what was that? You know, what was that like? Uh, well, the Sahara was one of my first. I wouldn't say my very first, but it was one of my first organised treks. Yeah. Uh, and and flying from Edinburgh right to Marrakesh, it was a right eye opener. So you just stayed one night in Marrakesh, and the next day you'd get transport to the edge of the, the, the Sahara. Then. And you just started trekking, which was so. What was the really purpose good. of the trek then? You know, what was I know you were talking about raising money for charity, but what what what, what charity was it, and how did you you know what, what what drove you to do this, and where did you get yeah where did you get where did you get all the information to do this? You know, how well, did you go about it? There's there's in Schoon there's a fantastic primary school here, but it's got an autism center on the end of it. Right. And I thought right, I'm going to do a trek. I don't know what company I'm going to do it with first, but I want a charities. So mm-hmm. I went and done it for the local Schoon Autism Centre. So I done that. 
Then I looked through the website and I came across a company that can do these treks. I thought, right, okay. Looked at the price and how much it's going to cost. I said, right, okay, I'll just pay that myself. Uh, started getting sponsorship, especially for the pub. My, my local pub was brilliant. Uh, and I raised X amount of money and, and just flew over and done it. And, and we walked about 150 miles in five days. And it was, the landscape was fantastic. Obviously, we had a wee bit of heat. Was yeah. there, but then the, the Sahara, you just get the impression that's just, it's just sand. No, no, it's not. It's, it's all different uh, floors. You know, you get dried up waterbeds. I've yep. I even seen a river going through the Sahara on the second time. I was, right, okay. Yeah, it was, it was flooded. Uh, but you get the sand dunes that are just amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just dried up waterbeds. A lot of sand, as you'll notice. Hardly any trees, nothing there. Uh, but you still had a great laugh. I mean, we stopped once. Uh, we were trekking through the Sahara and we stopped for, for dinner at one tree. There was only one tree in about 50 mile radius. Yes. So we stopped yeah. at this one tree. And what happens is the, the camels are carrying your large rucksack, etc. So they're about two miles behind us, three miles behind us. And they caught up with us. And the, the wee Berber boys, the, the, they're only about 15, 16, were kicking a burst ball about. And I'm in my kilt, eh? And I said to another boy with me, come on, let's hear a kickabout with these laddies. So we're hearing a kickabout. I said, let's hear a wee competition. Right, we'll have one goalie and it's two versus two, you know, football. Aye. So we put your jackets down. But because of the wind and that, they were blown away. Uh, I said, oh. And the Berber boy says, okay, okay, okay. He went and got two camels and sat them down as goalposts. Wow. <laughs> I thought, this is amazing. So we were playing football and it was all great until somebody kicks a ball and hits a camel. Wonderful. And the camel's off. The camel's there about 20 miles an hour. And the wee camelier's running after them, eh? It was really funny and bring them back. We're starting again, and it just broke up the dinner, eh? Yeah. So did that then get you the? Did that then get you the buzz for more uh, charity fundraising events? Then? So yeah, it's when I came back and and I gathered all the money. And sometimes it's harder gathering the money back in than it is actually doing the trek or the challenge yeah. itself. So I'd get all the money in, take it to the autism center and hand it over, and just to see the smile on the parents' faces and the nurses' faces. Because they're getting a wee bit of extra that they didn't normally have, mm-hmm. you know. So they, they were happy, and I thought, I'm going to do that again. So I had I had the buzz, I, I, you know. I was caught. Then I just did more and more and more. So what was the next one for you after that? Then can you remember? Oh, uh, I think Kilimanjaro. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Kilimanjaro. A lot of people have done Kilimanjaro. Uh, for charity yeah. or not for charity, and it's let's say eight days, nine days. The first five days, it just like warming the legs up till the last two days, which is is a bit more challenging. We'll call it. Aye, it's the uh, it's the it's the altitude. Yeah, the, the altitude gets most people. You could be the first. Did you go to Lava Tower at all? Lama Tower. Well, Lama Tower was a point on our route, which actually you got to about four, just over, it was your first time you got over 4,000 metres. Was that um, after the wall? Uh, yeah, and and uh, um, you went up to Lava Tower and then you obviously went back down to sleep. Yes. 
Um, that, that's right, we did do that. But I, I remember getting to Lava Tower and oh, oh, geez, I was ill. And, and your appetite goes completely. Um, and and for me, it was like, um, oh, no porridge again. <laughs> <laughs> I love porridge. I love <laughs> porridge. But, but for some reason, I don't know, your appetite just completely changes and you, you start to think, oh, no, no, that again. And it's uh, and it, and and it was the same thing every day, day in day out. And I was talking to the locals, saying, you know, is this is this kind of the normal stuff? And he says, oh, we eat this every day. And I went, what since birth? And it, I, it's like I just kind of comprehend somebody eats that same dish every single day. It's uh, well, as you know, because you've done it, it's it, it's challenging in the morning. You, you, before you do the summit, you know, you're up nice and early, and could be two o'clock, three in the morning, depending on depending on how, how early you want to get up there, because it takes about what it, it takes about ten hours. To get yeah, yeah, because you're it's slow, isn't it? It's very slow. You know, maybe stay. Ten o'clock at night we started, and we got to about uh, we got to eleven o'clock an hour later, and I was like, I was like, it was pitch black. You can't even see a thing. You've just got a head torch in front of you. You just see this basically gravel in front of you where you're walking and you're walking at less than a kilometre an hour. That's right. Just to acclimatise. And and an hour in, I hear people at the side and, and just in the darkness and I'm, th- I'm going to the guide, what's that? As if like, who's up here at this uh, time? And he says, uh, he says, well, no, it can't yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're joking. Well, no, it can't yet and we're an hour in. Because we were going that slow, and then then he says, "Look up there," and I says, "Oh, I, oh, oh they are beautiful stars." Eh? And he went, "No, no, that's the people. <laughs> that's the people. That's, the head yeah, that's their head torches." And I'm like, "You're joking." I says, "We've got all that way to go still." And he says, "That's just half it, pal." <laughs> uh, and, and his word was "poly, poly, 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 slowly, I, slowly, yeah," which means slowly, slowly. And I yeah. think, Christ, I was thinking to myself, if, "If you say poly, poly one more time, I'll take that poly and stick it where the sun doesn't shine." <laughs> <laughs> because because it was it, again I come back to saying it's a mental thing more than anything. I mean physical fine, but it's really mastering the mind and the, That's right. the ultimate boredom of being like that in the pitch black and just looking at your feet and a, a gravel bit at the front of you um, for the next eight or ten hours. Yeah, and and also when you get a certain height, you go past somebody sitting on the rock with two others beside them. And you think, what's he doing there? What's she doing there? That's people that won't go any further and want to go back. And they're just letting your group go there. And I'm thinking, oh, I, I could not not do it, if you know what I mean. I learned a huge amount of things from my trek on Kilimanjaro. Um, the other one was there was a load of people just motoring past us on the summit night. You know, that 10 yeah. hours that we were taking, we were going less than a kilometre an hour. Um, and they were, they were motoring past us. And yet, but when you got further on, they, it's exactly what you said. They were sitting at the side, um, yeah. saying, basically saying, I can't go any further. Yeah. Because they'd done it far too quick and they hadn't listened to the expertise and the experience of the people around about them. That had done That's it right, quick. yeah. So for me, it taught me a lot of things which I actually use in my business today and my same thinking and the fact that it's, listen, it is, it's a journey. It's not yeah. a destination. Oh, it's, boy, and, boy. and the, the uh, yeah, exactly. The constant the constant process every single day and the 1% improvement as you do every single day compounds to a 365% improvement over the year. That's right. That's right. And uh, I mean, when we got to the top, the top where the rim is, I thought that was it. 
and then say, no, no, you've got to walk all the way around. And, Aye, that, and that's where the signpost is. <laughs> no, that's just, the, that's just the signpost to say, congratulations, you've got this far. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're joking. Uh, my friend actually took it quite bad, and we were actually sharing pictures the other day on Facebook because this is the time of year we climbed. Um, but we were sharing pictures, and uh, and he got to that stage where he got to that sign, and then it was like, oh my god, we've got to go that way to get to the to the actual peak itself. And it, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and he says the thing that drove him and kept him going was the fact that he said he, he said I had in my mind that I was going to come back to the house and my kids had all the banner ready. Congratulations, daddy, you made it. And he <laughs> said, I just couldn't go back and, yeah. and, and and have my wee boy. He says, I could hear my wee boy saying to me, what do you mean, daddy, you never made it? Yeah. And he says, that's what drove him to the point that I actually physically stopped him halfway between these points and said, we're going to have to stop you and take your sats. We're going to have to put, you know, your take your uh, oxygen levels and everything like that to make sure you're okay because we're really concerned for you. And he and his opinion was, I'm either going to do this or I'm going to die. That's yeah, it. yeah. Because I just can't bear the fact that my children are going to let see them down. the fact that I never made it. Yeah. We, well, I've got a good photograph like most people have on the summit, but uh, I, I done a, a daft thing and I've learned for it since. Yeah. Uh, not to wear your kilt commando <laughs> all the way. Yeah, boy. I know. Out That'd the be worse than going in the water. Oh, out, out in the morning and then walking up that, you know, all the way to the summit. Then you see the snow and that. You think, I shouldn't be in my kilt. I should not have done this in my kilt. I've seen hundreds of people get their photograph 10 on the summit in a kilt. Yeah. And they wear trousers. Aye. I think, that's not how you wear a kilt. Uh, and you thought that's it? I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have done that. Necessarily. But I've done. I've done. I will say ninety percent of my treks in a in a kilt, eh, just to promote the country and that. Eh. It's one thing I do every time. I've got a, a like a oh, it must be a two meter by one and a half meter Scottish flag, and uh, and I take it with me everywhere. So I had it in the London Marathon. So I was running at the end of right. the London Marathon to the finish line, a sea of Union Jacks, and I just had the Scottish flag <laughs> running all the way down to the to the finish line at London Marathon. It, it and, must and be Buckingham part of Palace right at the back of me. Yeah, it must be part of what we do because I, I take a flag, a St Andrew's flag, but it will have on it Nepal and names underneath it. And these are the names of the people in the regiment that have died. So they're always going with me. So Throughout the whole flag's covered the names, and it's all places I've been to, and and all the boys that have died from the regiment during that year or before that year. So I I always think I'm I'm taking part of the regiment with me, you know, and I'm taking these guys that are going to be look after me on on all these treks. Yeah, I mean, you talked about Nepal, but this is uh, this is the 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 group in photo. Is it the Nepal Mountain Village School? Yeah. That, yeah, this was after the uh, the bath, bath, the earthquakes I had up there. I decided to to go and do it. And in that photograph there, away to one side of me, you see a young lady in the short sleeves. That's my nephew, uh, Sean, because he always wanted to do a, a trek with his uncle Jock. Yeah. So I think that was an eye opener for him. Uh, but we raised a few bob for uh, the lighthouse and for uh, our charity air ambulance here in Schoon. Mm -hmm. the kids were great they, they were just brilliant and you can see sorry 
It's all right. Keep going. Yes. There, there was, we took uh, pens and rubbers and all that kind of thing up for the schools. You know, rather than just take money, we took it's, stuff it's, that they could use throughout the year. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking it when you see what they don't have and yeah. what they have to do just to survive. I mean, you know, young laddies, uh, um, when you're going up Everest um, to the base camp, young laddies, like, um, they're maybe about 12 and 13-year-old, they're carrying 100 kilos on their back yeah. and boarding uh, just to actually survive. And, and you know, I'm like, oh, so you're, what, you're getting paid for that? And it's like $15, and that's a lot. But they've got to pay $10 to get digs. So they actually sleep outside. And some of them have actually died as a result of the fact that the cold conditions. Because they they can't afford to live in live in digs, um, and and these all these things and it's what you said it's just the the simple things like pencils and crayons and paper yeah. and rubbers and stuff like that they just don't have any of that stuff at all. And and it is an eye opener. I mean, we are we live in a privileged position. You know, some people will wake up and go, "Oh, I have no money." Yeah, but you've got heating, you've got a roof over your head, you've got clothes. A lot of people nowadays don't have that, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but that, that's all part of doing the trek. It's, it's meeting up with other communities, you know. Yeah, a, a sense of adventure and a sense of humour to go on these treks. Yeah. So after after uh, Nepal, next steps. Where were you next? Oh, I think I went to Russia. Did I go to Russia? Oh, Elbrus. Yeah, yeah Elbrus now. <laughs> This is where your planet goes, well, yeah. Right? This, is, this is where I was supposed to go last July um, to Elbrus, and uh, and lo and behold, obviously COVID put a stop to that, and uh, and it was supposed to be this July, but I don't think it's going to happen. So it'll probably be next July. Yeah. So this is good, the border. Yeah, that's a uh, the Georgian border with Russia. And they were they were having a bit of a, a disagreement, we'll call it at the time. Yeah. Uh, so. I actually met both types of troops on the, you know, border troops there, uh, sporting a big beard there and long hair. Uh, it was that was a great trip, hard, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah. Again, you've got the Scotland. Yeah, school in Scotland, <laughs> everything, and and that's actually a kilt I'm wearing. It's one yeah. of the like working kilts. Yeah. You know, uh, and I actually left that. I left that there with a woman that worked on. Uh, she had a stall, mm -hmm. and every morning she would give us her oranges and, and whatever to go, and we'd come back, and she was always there. It was an old, a really old woman, and she always wanted her 40 tin with the kilt. Mm -hmm. And on the last day, I had trousers on her, and I gave her the kilt. And she was over the moon to have this kilt on. Uh, but, yeah, Elbrus, Elbrus is a good one. Yeah, it's uh, you know I'm looking forward to that definitely. Um, so after that, what, what were you going on to after that then? After Elbrus, uh, I was going to be desert. Ah, yeah, Ulubatan. Now, I mean, have you got a, have you just got a, a a streak for a sense of adventure then? Is that yeah, what that's all like, about? Just like to go to places that other people don't go to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can all lie on the beach and that. Eh? Yeah, yeah. Willie Henderson. So Willie Henderson is who? Willie Henderson uh, is a, he's a Rangers idol. You, you know, he, he played for Rangers in the 50s and 60s. He raised a lot of money for charity as well. Yeah. Uh, and the badge we're wearing, that's a football badge that started the team called Gobi United. 
mm-hmm. and it's got the Rangers badge, the Celtic, and the Motherwell badge on it. And we combined in the three badges to have Go Be United. Because we're all united for one cause, raising money, and two, we're in the Go Be. Yeah. Uh, so I, I played football with Willie Henderson mm-hmm. in Ula Batan in the National Stadium. Yeah. So so after this, what, what were you what, what took you on to the next steps? Which one? Uh, I think I went yeah, I done the Sahara again because mm-hmm. a pal wanted to go for the village. And then I went to back to Morocco and done Mount Tubcar. You've done Mount Tubcar. I've been up there myself. It's got this weird, wonderful creation up the top, eh? Yeah, that metal the, thing. The 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 the, the metal the, triangle the, thing. The triangle thing. And yeah. then when you look over the side and you see the desert, you know, when Hi. you look over the cliff, it's like wow. And and I remember them telling me somebody fell four thousand meters down to the bottom of this crevice one time. Oh dear. Uh, it, the, no, when I was there, but the, that yeah, was a story. Yeah. Maybe it was an urban myth, but <laughs> just the just the thought. It's like when you look down, you think, oh my goodness. It's like I couldn't believe that, but that was wonderful. And yet, that there was a beautiful waterfall on the way up there. That's right, so, yeah. It was just stunning to just sit and watch. And it, it was like something out of these tropical films that you see, you know, like Jurassic Park or something. That's right. Uh, yeah. I took uh, I took Dundee United, sorry, Dundee Football Club supporters there. Yep. Uh, and and they were uh, they were they were a good laugh. Tell me about that story. Oh, that story. Oh. <laughs> So, what's the nickname for the Dundee uh, Dundee football supporters? Dundee. D- well, Dundee United. Dundee United are called the Arabs. Yeah, and what happened on that <laughs> famous night? Oh, dear. Okay, so a good percentage of us got to the top of Mount Tubcal. Then we all trudged back down, stayed overnight, then the next day, we got transport back to Marrakesh. We're having our celebration meal in one of the poshest hotels in Marrakesh. Beautiful, beautiful location. I'm sitting next to Steve Martin, a director, and another director, financial director, and, and the rest of the boys, boys. And we've all got, like, Dundee tops on. We even had a piper. So we're all having a drink, and being Scottish, we're like a wee sing-song and that, so... They're all having a drink and a sing song. And Steve Martin, Stevie says to me, he says, Jock, the boys are right. I said, the boys are on the ball. Not a, not a problem. So they're getting louder and louder. And they're on the chairs. Jock, are the boys all right? I said, the boys are fine. He gets on the table. Jock, are the boys all right? I said, Stevie, I'm from methyl. This is normal. This is nothing. <laughs> like, okay. The, the ex-servicemen's club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So then the next time they started singing, and excuse my friends, but they started singing, if you hate the Arab bastards, clap your hands. And they've all done it a few times. And, and the I'm in shock. It is because Dundee and Dundee United are huge rivals. Yeah. And Dundee United is clearly called the Arabs. Yeah. And I'm in shock. And I'm looking at them in shock. I think, no, they're not saying that. But everybody's sitting around us. All the Arabs sitting around us. And they're in Morocco. Looking, I'm saying, Stevie, get them doing it, let's get out. I, I hate the Arabs as well. You know, I said, Stevie, we're in Morocco, come on. He said, I would never thought about that. But all quieting down, it was okay, but it was a bit scary. But it was a great trip, it was a great trip. 
Right. So what took you to R Romania then? Romania was another place. You know, what happened there? Well, uh, I wasn't going to do much more because I'm thinking the years are getting on here. Eh? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> again in the kill, look at the beer belly. <laughs> so as you can see, I never done a lot of training there before I went. But uh, in one of the photos there, I was in Nepal with my nephew, and uh, he, his wee laddie is, he, he's actually on there, he's he, he's sick, he's no well, he's, he takes lots of fits, so I says, I'll try and raise some money for the wee man, I call him wee jock, although his name's Lloyd, uh, and I says, I'll go and climb the highest mountain in Romania, in Kilt, never been done before. No one's ever been at the summit in Kilt before. And I can see why. Because that was, again, Baltic. Not as cold as Kilimanjaro. But you didn't do Commando was... again, did you? Sorry? You didn't do Commando again, did you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and there was places, Jim, where you're on the walk and you had to go up the side of the mountain. And rather than scramble up with your hands, they had these chains. So you had to pull yourself up. And there's people behind you waiting to go on, and they're all looking up. And, and they're, they're looking up. Yeah, <laughs> then they go behind you. <laughs> but uh, it was great. And and the spurn I've got on there, uh, that's a black water spurn. Uh, the black water boy who passed on, I, it's his spurn. And I took it and I nailed it to the uh, the hut before the summit. Eh? So if anybody goes up there, they'll see my spurn nailed to the, the ceiling of this hut. Wow, that's amazing. It was a great trip. So Etna, um, so Etna, Mount Etna. What 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 inspired you to do Mount Etna then? Uh, it was easier. There was a bit of sun on my back doing that one. And uh, I'd never been to Italy before in my life. And I just yeah. thought, that appeals to me. That was good. Uh, and it was a great trip. Honestly, the Italians were fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a typical. <laughs> Look at everybody with their, be uh, their beach clothes on. And you like, is that me. your kilt you've got on? Yeah, that's my kilt. I, <laughs> I've got my spurn around my shoulder there. Not as me, it's five, but it. <laughs> so what are, you, what are you doing? I stood on some, and I was looking to see, I thought it was a, some kind of shark kind of fish or something. So uh, I was looking for some, but everybody sees it and says, are oh, you looking for money? Oh, it was roasting, it was roasting, eh? It was great. Yeah. Look at the chubby cheeks. And then that's the that's the that's the summit I hate now. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's it, it was great. Uh, and Steve Martin, a good pal of mine, he done the Frank's Law, which is uh, to do with uh, dementia that head and balls for football players. Uh, put on top of me, he's five top. Yeah. But it was a great trip. It was a great trip. But Etna, it's, it's had a uh, had an explosion, you know, a rupture no long ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm glad I done it. And then subsequently, you know, um, so you've done all these charity things, you've done all these fundraising efforts, and you've 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 come you've you've come back home. Um, you know, it, it, what the boxing thing did that go any further? I mean, you know, is is the, did that go any further as a result, or you know uh, what? Because, because I've got a photo here of you and uh, you know one of the one of the great 
a great boxer. Um, and uh, I think most people will know him. Frank. Ah, oh, big Frank, yeah. <laughs> so He's Frank sat, sat at your table at the British Boxing uh, Hall of Fame. I, I, I travelled down with a good pal of mine called Ken Buchanan, uh, who I've known for years and years. And Ken's getting a wee bit, not just old, but his health, etc. So the organisers of the event says, can you bring Kenny down? I said, yeah, I could bring Kenny down. You know, they paid for the flights, paid for the accommodation about him. And uh, we were there for the weekend and we had a ball. You know, uh, Frank Bruno and, and John Quanti sat at your table along with Kenny. Uh, but it was good. It was a good laugh. I could imagine, um, you know, he's, he's obviously, uh, he's obviously a, a legend in everybody's hearts. You know, he's, he's won the hearts and minds of everybody, really. You know, and, and John Conti's a, you know, absolutely superb athlete um, from from many years ago. So this takes me on to the other thing as well. There's, um, you've done all this charity fundraising. At, at what point did you get the call? You know, how did that all come about? The, the MBE? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, it was, there's, there, there's two fantastic people that ran your local Alec and Catherine, uh, they, they come from Hamilton. And unknown to me, they were digging deep and asking all different charities what I've done for them and all the trips I've been on. And they nominated me. So it did come as a shock and a great surprise to be nominated. A wee boy from Ethel getting an MBE. I was honestly, I was in awe. It was fantastic. And meeting the big boss at the same time was just great. And when you think about the logic of this, you know, we'll come back to saying it again in the very beginning when we started. You're exactly right. A wee laddie for methyl. Yeah. I so mean, how, you know, when you think about the journey that you've gone through to get to that stage, would you ever have thought anything like that could ever have happened in the beginning? No, no never in my puff. Never in my puff. It's, it's, it doesn't matter where you come from or what your upbringing is or, or anything like that. If you decide to work hard, uh, keep on a, a straight line as much as possible, you, you will get there in the end. You will get there in the end. I'm not saying everybody's going to get an MBE and everybody's going to do this and that, but they, they will feel better for it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's easy to make a pound, but it's, it's a lot tougher to make a difference, you know? Ah, uh, oh, that's a great phrase. It is, it is. That's a great phrase, eh? That really does settle things. You know, I, I often say to myself, there's only so much money you can make and the rest is just for show. Yeah. I mean, people say, oh, two million. I says, well, that was in 2014. I've made a couple of bobs since then. But it's no, it's not about the counting. It's, it's what you've done on that journey on the way, the difference you've made to people's lives on the way. And you don't even know all these people. Yeah. I, I mean... Uh, last week I put my car in for MOT at Arnold Clark. Sorry, I'm not trying to promote Arnold Clark, but uh, the, the woman was telling me about the service and everything like that. Uh, and she just started talking about doing a virtual run for the London Marathon or something. I says, how are you getting on with that? She says, oh, it's no great with the fundraising. I says, I could help you out there. So financially, I said, no, I know financially. I said, but what I can do is I can give you signed 
prints and things like that. I'll put them in next week. And I couldn't go that week because my work was unbelievable. Uh, but I went in and see her. She says, oh, I forgot. I thought you had forgot all about this. I says, no. There you go. There's these three prints. And they're all singers and boxers and sports people. She was over the moon. Yeah. And it was just to see that wee smile of make a difference. And she says, this is going to, uh, I think it's a cancer charity in Scotland. And you don't know who you're helping. And for me, it doesn't matter who you're helping. As long as you're helping, we're making a difference. Yeah. It's more, it's more the amount of people that your lives, your life can touch their lives and make a difference in their life as a result of what you've done. That, that, that's it. I, I think that's the, that's the biggest testimony when you go to your, to your de- on your deathbed. You know, yes. that's really it. That's what, what have you done to help other people in yeah. your life? And, and I want to go and sit, sit in the East Dock Bar in Methil with my great big fat beer belly. And be able to boast, I've been to Marrakesh, I've been to Casablanca, I've been to Timbuktu, I've been to all these places, you know. And now I can sit back and just let my beer belly grow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, this takes me to your long friendship with this guy. Oh, no, that's Charlie Sexton. Oh, right, okay. That's Charlie Sexton. That's me and the Army boxing team. Oh, right, okay. So that's the Army boxing team. And then there's... This guy. That's us down in Wales. Aye. I was taking it three o'clock in the morning or something. Tell me a bit more about Ken. Kenny's a legend. I, I, I met Kenny, well, my family's known Kenny for oh, God knows how many years. My dad boxed him. And uh, when my dad said he boxed him, I went, aye, all right, dad, just a drink speaking. But he did, he boxed him twice. And yeah. I've got proof of that uh, on posters and on boxing cards. And my mum worked with his mum. Uh, so... I met him in 1985 uh, in Edinburgh, invited him to a boxing show. And uh, we've been pals ever since. He comes and stays with me. We've been on a holiday together. We, we go to all the big boxing shows together. We just clicked, just clicked it. Uh, we're just good pals. Yeah. So, so much good pals. You actually wrote a book on them. Yeah. <laughs> well... I was coming back to Wales and I was coming back to a trip and such and such. And I was scribbled down what we had done because I didn't want to forget what we had done. And uh, I was talking to a couple of pals in the pub and said, you should put it in a book. I said, oh, I can't expel on them. You know, I'm dyslexic and I'm, my English is poor. And all. And I says, oh, but somebody could help you do that. And they were right. That somebody did help me. Uh, a boy called Colin Lamont uh, in, in Perth helped me. And he says, I'll put it all together for you. You just look through it and make sure it's all right. And but then that's again I come back to saying that's what people don't realise. They look at they look at people in larger positions, but they don't realise it's the people that surround themselves that help them to get up to that position. It's not they don't do all by themselves. You're right. I mean, uh, I if it wasn't for lockdown, this was this book would still be on my computer. But yeah. if it wasn't for Colin saying to me, Joe, I can help you out with that. I said that's great. You know, uh, and I know somebody else that does printing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and it's the old saying, you know, throw the pebble in the water and the ripples, that's that's all the people that can help you kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, and the book's doing great. You know, it's doing better in America than it is in Britain. Where do you get where do you get to buy this book, Jock? You, you, you can you can get it on uh, Kindle now. 
Yeah, uh, you can get it off my website. Just type in Jock McInnes. And you your website's website. on this post. Your website's on this post. That's great. You, you get go through uh, my Facebook page. You can get it. It's on this and, post. And the, and the book is what they call not sanitized. It's it's written the way I speak, and I say yeah. coo and dug and horse and what. And I swear, <laughs> believe it or not, I do swear. It's all right. in there. And I didn't want to sanitize. I wanted to keep it right the, the way I speak. And it's all stories, always stories, good stories about a friendship between two pals. One just happens to be the greatest boxer Scotland's ever had. Ever and had, one, yeah. Yeah, and one's just a wee boy to me, though. But, you know, I can now say I'm an MBE and I'm an author now. Brilliant, you know, eh? And, and it's, it's going that journey to Methyl Primary School, to going to Kirkland, to going to the Army, and so on. And that's the thing. And it all started out with this wee boy for methyl. And that's it. And it's in the book. Wee boy for methyl had a desire, a drive, a passion. He followed what he, his instinct took him, really. Um, he, he Sometimes he just just went for it and just kept going for it. The reality is, and regardless of the odds, he overcame them and and, and, and came to this point where you've raised, you've raised over two million for charity. You're an MBE. And you're an author as well. I mean, jeez. But it's like sitting on the bus going out of the tune. You never know who you're sitting beside, you know. And and, and the wee boy that comes on the bus and, and sits picking his nose or sticking a lolly in his ear, that wee boy can do exactly what I have done because I, I wasn't special. I wasn't any different. Yeah. You know, that wee boy could go and do everything I've done. And I'll pick up on the thing about dyslexia. It's like, wait a minute. People would automatically assume uh, you can't write a book, and it's like, well, no, I didn't. I've got somebody else to help me. Yeah, you can't use it as an excuse. Yeah, you know, you've got to get around it. Uh, even at my work, I do paperwork at work. It's not the great, mm-hmm. but people know, and they help you. Yeah, you know, they, they do help you, and, and it's great. But what what I've learned, and I've done it many times, and I can put this offer out to anybody, if if they're looking to go on a trip or they want to raise money or let's say there's a, a WRI wanting a talk on how to fundraise or do trips, I can come along. I can meet up with them and, yeah. and I, can, I can do a PowerPoint presentation on, on all the trips and how to raise yeah. money. And, you know, your I mean, journey... Talk, as well, you could even do that via Zoom just now. I you can know, do it via, via Zoom. Come on a Zoom and tell all these people how to do the fundraising because you've done it. That's the reality. I mean, you were put in touch with me originally by Dave Payton. Yeah. You know, um, and and because I was doing I was doing a, a climb for Elbrus and uh, and that didn't happen, hence the reason why we're here talking today. So if it wasn't for that scenario, we would never have met. We would never have spoken. That's it. And and it's all about people around you, people helping you. Because you know, we're not an island, we're we're out there. Yeah. Fantastic. That's Jock. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, and and thank you everybody else for watching. And if you've got any other questions, please feel free to put them in the comments. We'll get them later. Um, unfortunately, the, the we've got a, we've had to use another system because of technical issues. Um, so we will I will look through and I will make sure I pick them up later and pass them on to Jock. And, pass them uh, on, yeah, and I'll, I'll answer them as. Uh, or you could message us direct here as well, and we'll get these messages as well. And uh, and that's it. Thanks very much for coming on the Sunday slot, Jock. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate you giving me the time. Jim, let me know how you get on if you go to Elbrus. 
Excellent. I will. Oh, I'm definitely booked in. I've paid all the money. I'm going. <laughs> I'm a typical fifer. Yeah. I'm Can't waste that. Uh, <laughs> it's been great, Jim. All right, See you later. Bye bye. Bye just now. Give me two seconds, Chuck. We'll just, uh, I think that's finishing off. I'll give you a call, okay?